Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. This is the second Sunday of Advent. That means Christmas is only two weeks away. And I do want to say this, and this may seem kind of weird. Tell me if this is true or not. My understanding is a lot of folks, especially women, feel an immense amount of pressure to have like this perfect Christmas, like this perfect Hallmark Christmas. Is that true or not? Okay, all right. So like, like something out of a Hallmark movie. And I just want to say this, and, I, and I'm serious. As your pastor and on behalf of the elders and deacons, on behalf of your church family, your church family cares a lot more about you drawing near to Jesus and, and loving him than, it is, than, than you having the perfect like Instagram Christmas. You know that? So I would just ask you to like, don't put that pressure on yourself. Give that burden over to the Lord. Um, just love Christ and rejoice in him. We can try to have good Christmases, but we're, it, you're not going to have like this perfect like movie Christmas. And your church doesn't care about that. that, that we don't need to have, worry about having like a movie set Christmas, all right? So ladies especially, just take that pressure off yourself. Give that burden over to the Lord and, and really think about just his love for you. That's what we're going to talk about again today, just how awesome Jesus is. So that's my encouragement to you, all right? All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to... Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're continuing in Matthew. And this morning we're going to look at what the Bible, not Instagram, says about Christmas. So last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew 1, the very beginning. We saw that, Jesus, that Matthew was showing us that Jesus came from immoral people. That means he came for immoral people. He came to save a people who are not clean. Jesus is a great physician. People who are well don't need the doctor, right? If you think that you're perfectly well and you don't need Christ, then he didn't come for you. At least right, right, not right now, right? So in this genealogy that we saw last week, we saw that Matthew was telling us that the king is coming. And this morning we're going to be focusing more on who Jesus is. And we're going to see this in this little encounter with an angel with Joseph. We're going to see that Jesus is our Savior, he's our God, and he is Emmanuel. So that's the title of my sermon, Savior God, Emmanuel. Before we read it, we just read the account from Luke, and Luke's account is from Mary. I may talk a little bit more about this. Luke's account, you can tell us from Mary. Matthew's account, which is interesting, is from the perspective of Joseph. So notice that just as we go through the text, okay? Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Let's read it, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. All right, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, verse 18. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew's telling us about how Jesus' birth came about. So he's describing real events. These are real life events. This is not mythology. This is real history, okay? As I said, Matthew is writing from the perspective of Joseph, and you, that's how we can tell about his dream and stuff. It's, I would be interested to know how Matthew got this information. Maybe he talked to Joseph's family, because by the time this is written, Joseph, Joseph had been dead for a long time. By the time Jesus' earthly ministry, Joseph had been dead. So, but I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that God has given us two different narratives, one from the perspective of Mary and Luke and then one from the perspective of Joseph here in Matthew. All right, it says, When his, Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, Betrothal practice in first century Israel was different from today. In, in that culture, marriages were usually arranged. So if you've ever seen, and it has continued actually throughout history. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you know, the matchmaker, there's a matchmaker in town that, that gets people together, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? So these marriages were arranged, and what would happen is the parents of the girl would meet together with the parents of the boy, and they would come to an agreement. And it was almost like a business agreement. It was almost like a contract. It was less about love and gooey feelings and more about a, a, a contractual arrangement. Between, and a lot of it had to do with between these two families. Okay, And so when they had this, that they would, the boy was usually about 17 or 18, and the girl was usually younger, 13, 14, 15. Okay, so you think about that, just how, how, that, would, how that would work today. Um, so as I said, the betrothal ceremony was usually a, for, was a formal legal arrangement. It was made in the presence of witnesses, so it was a big deal. That's why you'll see that the words husband and wife do not, t- you know, they, like they're, they're, even before they're married, they're using this term like husband and wife because it was almost like a marriage, a marriage. So the young couple would usually be engaged for about a year before getting married, and as I said, the engagement was more like a marriage, and you couldn't just call it off. Like today, if somebody's engaged, they can just call it off. To, to end, to cancel the betrothal, you had to go through like formal divorce proceedings, okay? So it was a really big deal. It was a contractual deal. All right, verse 18, it says, before they came together. So Matthew's saying that Joseph and Mary had no sexual relationship. But then Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant. It says she was found to be with child. Also, verse 18 says the child was from the Holy Spirit. So Mary is with child. She's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would ask you to try to put yourself in that place at that time. Try to be involved and think about what that would be like. Can you imagine the conversations that Mary had with her parents? I just can't imagine the stress on this young girl. I mean, she has to say something like, Mom, Dad, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think, right? God, the Holy Spirit, impregnated me. What, like, can you imagine that conversation? There's just people, I just feel so bad for Mary. I mean, she is blessed, but to be put in this situation, think about her parents' reaction. And then I'm sure Mary and her parents would have to meet with Joseph and, and his parents and just think about how difficult this was for all of them, especially for young Mary. 
And I'm guessing almost everybody, I'm guessing literally everybody, thought that she had been sexually immoral and was just making up lies or she was crazy or something. So it's a really difficult time. And then I also think about Joseph. This is, again, from his perspective here in Matthew. Joseph has got to be super confused, and I'm sure he does not believe that, that Mary has remained sexually pure. So now Joseph has a decision, right? What is he going to do? Is he going to publicly shame Mary, if he does that, then he can, then the village where they are in Nazareth, then the village will know that it's not his fault, it's her. So his reputation and his family's reputation will be intact if he does, if he publicly shames Mary. But it's possible that Mary would be stoned to death for sexual immorality if that happened, okay? Another option for him, this is one he chooses, is to divorce her quietly. But in doing this, he really does risk the reputation, tarring the reputation of himself and his family. Because he would, there would have to be some explanation, there would be some gossip about why he is ending this marriage. Okay, so what does he do? Well, verse 19 says, and it says, And her, Mary's husband, see he's already referred to as the husband, Mary's husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This little verse tells us a lot about the kind of man Joseph was. He was considering what to do, and he eventually decided to quietly divorce Mary. I'm going to talk more about Joseph in just a little bit, but already you can see the kind of character that Joseph has. He's a kind, compassionate, godly young man. So he's willing to divorce her quietly instead of putting her to shame. Again, this would have risked his his reputation and his family's reputation, Uh, because, as I said, people would have gossiped about it. And this was a huge deal because this was a shame-honor culture. And your reputation and what people thought about you and your family was massively important. And yet, he's willing to do that. He's willing to risk his reputation and his family because he was such a compassionate and godly young man. All right, verse 20. So he's decided to divorce Mary quietly. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So it says that Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly before he was doing this. It says he was considering these things, or as he considered these things. And actually, the Greek word from this, the root word, indicates passion or anger or even rage. So I don't know if consider is a good translation. I'm not a Greek expert. Or it could be that what this is saying, instead of considered all things, it could mean that Joseph was furious, that he was angry. And he was in a rage. And this would be understandable, right? If I were in that situation, I would be furious too. But again, he decides to divorce her quietly, not publicly shame her. But before this happens, he goes to bed one night and he has a dream. And in the dream, God sends him a message. And often in the Bible, God communicates to people through dreams. And so God sends a messenger. That's literally what that word angel means. It's messenger. And he tells the messenger, angel tells Joseph in a dream. And I don't know how I was thinking about it. How does God send an angel in a dream? Like, it's like, 
It's like one of these movies, like something happening in a dream, but somehow God sends an angel to, to Joseph in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of David. And we've talked about this a little bit. Son of David, that's an important thing because this ties in with what we talked about last week because Jesus is the legal descendant from King David through Joseph. So the angel calls Joseph son of David. He's, Matthew is stressing, and the angel is stressing, this kingly line of King Jesus. So this is important because Jesus is going to be the legal descendant of David through Joseph, but Joseph must legally adopt Jesus. Joseph must take Jesus to be his son. And in those days... The way that you adopted someone, and this is what Joseph is going to do to legally adopt Jesus, he had to do two things. One, he had to take Mary as his wife. That's one. The second is he will name the child. He will name the child. In Israel, a father would adopt a son, adopt a child by naming the child. That was the significance of naming, okay? So Joseph will adopt Jesus and signify his adoption by taking Mary as his wife, and by naming the child. And in the dream, the angel reassures Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the angel is saying, Joseph, I know you're afraid about this. I know you're afraid to take Mary as your wife because you think she's been sinful, but she hasn't. So don't be afraid to take her as your wife, her as, as your wife. So the angel informs Joseph that the baby conceived in Mary is not the result of sin, no matter what the circumstances look like. Things are not what they appear. And he's saying the baby is from the Spirit of God. And then in the dream, the angel tells Joseph, he says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the baby's going to be a boy. Mary's going to have a son. And notice, again, the angel says, Joseph, basically he's saying, you're commanded to give this baby a name. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. You, Joseph, okay? You're required to name the son, in effect, to adopt the son and make him legally your own. And so he says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua It was a common name back then. In fact, you can tell that because Jesus was often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, right? To indicate that he was from the town of Nazareth. He was not different. There were a lot of Jesuses around, a lot of Yeshua's, Joshua's around. But he was the one from Nazareth. And the name literally means he rescues or God rescues or he saves or Yahweh saves. So the name is a wonderful reminder that God saves. But again... Notice the angel says this, he says he will save, Jesus will save. He's stressing that Jesus is going to be the one doing the saving. So Jesus is the Savior sent by God the Father, and the angel says that Jesus will save his people from the Syrians, the Egyptians, the Romans. Who who is he going to save his people from? No, Jesus is going to save his people from their greatest enemy, sins. The greatest enemy that we have is not enemies around here. The greatest enemy that we have is our own sin. That is our enemy. And that's what the angel tells Joseph. He says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. This is good news, right? This is the gospel. So even in a strange dream, 
where an angel appears to Joseph, we see the gospel, the good news that Jesus will save us, his people, from our greatest enemy, our own sins. And I would just say to someone now who is not turned away from your own sins, do that right now. Turn away, repent of your sins, and turn to Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. I guarantee you cannot save yourself from your sins. You cannot save yourself from the penalty of sins and the judgment of sin. Jesus is the only one who can do this. So turn to him in faith even now. All right, that's verse 31. Now look at verse 22. That's verse 21. Now look at verse 22. Matthew tells us that Jesus' virgin birth fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy. So it says, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and a Jewish audience would have known the Old Testament. And this is interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are 11 times when Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Okay, In the whole book of Matthew, and there are 28 chapters right in Matthew, there are 11 times. Well, out of those 11 times, five of those Old Testament prophecies occur right here in the first two chapters of Matthew. So Matthew is telling us very quickly, right from the get-go, that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies pointed to, okay? He wants us to see this very early on, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is the great rescuer, the Savior, promised throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised one, and Matthew wants us to see that. Look at verses 22 to 23. Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew tells us which means God with us. Okay? So Matthew's quoting Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, 14. And Matthew is saying that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And as we see in this passage, the Bible makes it crystal clear that Jesus was born of a virgin. And I want to spend a little time thinking about the virgin birth. What's the big deal about the virgin birth? Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Well, here's why. Because the virgin birth made it possible for full deity and full humanity to be united in one person. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son is the second person of the Trinity. And God the Son is God. He's always existed. And the virgin birth was how God the Father sent his Son into the world as a man. Jesus was born from a human mother to show us that Jesus really is human. And Jesus had to experience all the things we experience as human beings. He, he was born. He grew up. Then as he grew up, he faced trials and temptations. And he had to obey all of God's law throughout his life. We've seen this in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2 says Jesus had to be made, made like his brothers in every respect. So he could become a sympathetic high priest. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So he can know what we're going through, so he could experience as a human what we go through. So also, Jesus had to be human so he could die. That was why he came, to die in the place of us sinners. And God can't die. So Jesus came to die in the place of his people to pay the penalty, the death penalty, 
that we deserve for our sins. So God made it so that Jesus was born of a woman so that he would be human. But Jesus was not conceived like us. Everybody here has a biological mom and a biological dad, right? We all have a mother and a father. And this is significant that Jesus did not have a biological human father because Jesus was not born with a sin nature. He did not have a propensity to sin. He had no inclination to sin. Although he was fully human, he did not have a propensity to sin. By not having a human father, God in some way made it such that the sinful nature of Adam was interrupted. Okay, So God in his wisdom ordained the virgin birth and this was the perfect combination of human and divine influence. So Jesus is fully man yet without inherited sin. He's fully human, right? He, he grew weary and tired. He was dependent on sleep. I think about Jesus as a baby. This time of year, we think about Jesus as a baby or as a toddler. Think about it. He had to learn how to walk, right? You ever seen the toddlers pull up on the table and they do the little shuffle and then they squat down in their diapers, you know? They, they do this little thing. That's what Jesus had to do. He had to learn how to walk, he had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to say mama and daddy, you know? Can you imagine? Can you imagine Jesus as a little boy and he's learning the Hebrew alphabet? Maybe his mom's showing him flashcards, you know? Maybe they had a Hebrew hooked on phonics. <laughs> Hook it on phonics. Um, he, was taught, he was taught the Bible, right? He learned the Ten Commandments. He learned Old Testament prophecies. And this one blew me away. Think about this. Jesus is learning Old Testament prophecies, prophesying about himself. He's learning those things. Isn't that wild? So Jesus was fully human, and he will always be human. When he ascended into heaven, he did not dump his humanity. He's human right now. He will always be human. He did that for us, his people. And as I said, he's fully God. Our, our memory passage, we just said it, it's from Colossians 1. 15 to 17, it's talking about Jesus. It says, for by him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. This is the son of God. It says, and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Jesus is God. By him, the universe was created. And he, right now, he holds everything together by the word of his power. In the song, Labor of Love by Andrew Peterson, it has this line, and this is awesome. It's talking about Joseph and Mary, and it says, So he, Joseph, held Mary, so he held her and he prayed. <laughs> this gets me. Shafts of moonlight on his face. And then it says this, But the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. The baby in Mary's womb was the maker of the moon, and the moonlight was shining down on Joseph and Mary. That just blows me away. Or the song, Mary, Did You Know, right? There's this line in Mary, Did You Know. When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. You kiss your baby, Mary, and you're kissing the face of God. It is so amazing. So in his humanity, Jesus was born as a baby, and yet in his deity, he's the sovereign God who made the universe. And the virgin birth made it possible for deity to be united with humanity in one person. That's why the virgin birth is so important. 
Now listen, I'll just say this. These are things that you should study and think about, honestly. And I don't, in my view, I don't think Christians spend enough time pondering the deep truths of the faith, like the deity of Christ, like, like the virgin birth. We need to spend time pondering and thinking and study about these things because they will transform you. When you study these things, you will be transformed. But know this, virgin birth, deity of Christ, these are things too deep for us to understand completely. We have some understanding, but we can't understand them completely. But this is important. These are not issues to be argued about, right? They're truths to be embraced. These are not issues to be debated. They are mysteries that we should rejoice in. And the fact, this is an apologetic, a proof, the fact that there are profound mysteries in Christianity only makes sense, right? If I was making up a religion, everything would fit together neatly. There would be no huge mysteries. But the fact that we're talking about the immortal, infinite God who has no beginning and no end. We're talking about the infinite and holy Son of God who took on flesh. And in that, we should expect to find mysteries, right? We should expect to find things that are just too deep for us to fully comprehend. So I would say just don't let these mysteries throw you off. Embrace them. Rejoice in them and allow these mysteries to really fuel your worship of our awesome God. All right, back to Matthew. The angel told Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He says, the angel says, go through with the marriage and then name the boy Jesus. Look down at verse uh, 24. 24, it says, when Joseph, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph wakes up, he's thinking about this dream. I'm sure when he was lying in bed thinking about this dream, pondering what God had told him, he was fearful. I bet he was terrified, but I also bet he was joyful. And then look at what happened. It says, when Joseph woke, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He sits up in bed, gets up and gets dressed, and he does what God told him to do. He obeyed. There's another thing that I think is modern Christians, we don't take seriously enough. He doesn't weigh the pros and cons. You know that? He doesn't pray about whether he should do it. If God tells you to do something, you know what? You don't have to pray about whether you should do it. You don't have to pray and see, should I have a feeling about whether I should obey God? No, you don't have to pray about that. You do it. You do it. And I would ask you too, are there things in your life right now where you know you're disobeying God? They know that God is not pleased with that, right? Stop, <laughs> just stop. Start living for him and obeying him. And that's what Joseph does. He just gets up and he does it. He does what he's told to do. He obeys and I love it. And I have immense amount of respect for Joseph. I'm gonna talk about Joseph for a little bit. We don't know a lot about Joseph. Did you know this? There is not a single quote in the Bible from Joseph. We don't, we don't know a single word that he ever said. We hear from Mary we hear from John the Baptist. We hear from John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. But we never hear a word from Joseph. We don't know a single thing he ever said, not a single quote. And that's so interesting to me because with Joseph, what we find is, I think with what, what we find in him is there's nothing fancy here. He was Joe, right? He was Joe the carpenter. That's who this guy was. He was a quiet guy who made a living with his hands. He's a guy in the background. He was a craftsman. He was a working man. 
And this is pretty amazing because what we see in this account is that God, God the Father, clearly in his providence, God the Father did not want his son to be raised by a rabbi or a priest or a religious leader. God did not want his son to be raised by a politician or a wealthy merchant. God did not want his son to be raised by a doctor or an intellectual or a lawyer, right? No, God wanted his son to be raised by a working man, a working man who is willing to set aside his reputation for the glory of God. He and Paul said this. He said, Joseph was a good man who put God's agenda for Mary before his own hopes. Joseph was a working man who left his home and his business for the sake of the girl he loved and the God he loved. Joseph was a godly young man who set aside his sexual desires for Mary until after Jesus' birth, just as his son Jesus would set aside the joys of marriage and sexual love. Joseph was a young man who was ready to lay down his life for his bride Mary, just as his son Jesus was ready to lay down his life for his bride, the church. I'm sure Jesus learned a lot about character from his dad, Joseph. I I am impressed with Joseph. I look forward to meeting Joseph in the resurrection life to come. He's an impressive young man, put in a terrible situation, and he handles with, with dignity and compassion and kindness. All right, last thing this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus is Emmanuel. We've seen that Jesus is Savior, he's God, and now we see that Jesus is Emmanuel. Verse 23 says, and he's been talking about Isaiah's prophecy, it says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. Matthew is stressing to us, that God is present with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he can do that because he's God, right? In his Godhood, Jesus can be with us. He can't be with us right now in his humanity, but he can be with us in his Godhood. He, can also send, he also sends his spirit so that we can be in the presence of God. So Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And I would say this, this is one of those things that we need to speak to ourselves continually. I need to say to myself constantly that Jesus is always with me. And I need to pray, Jesus, I know you're with me, even though I may not feel that you're with me, right? Even though I may not feel it, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to trust my feelings. I'm trusting you, Lord, because you're Emmanuel, and I know you're right here with me. So one truth that I would just encourage you to speak over and over again to yourself is that Jesus is with me. He's my Emmanuel. His presence is real. We just need to ask him to make us aware of his presence. And I'll tell you, in my own experience, it's happened even more recently, one of the most transforming things in my life is just being in the presence of the Lord, knowing that he's near, reminding me of the truth, reminding myself of the truth that Christ is with me. He's with us. And I do this dozens and dozens of times a day. And it allows me to draw nearer to my Lord. And I would encourage you to do the same. And also, Jesus is not just with us individually. In America, we have a tendency to be very individualistic. But but Jesus is also with us as the people of God, as the church. We've been looking at the first chapter of Matthew, first chapter, this is the first chapter of the New Testament. But in Matthew 28, 20, the very end of Matthew, so we're looking at the very beginning of Matthew, Jesus is Emmanuel. Very end of Matthew, the very last verse of Matthew is 28, 20. 
And it's the same truth. Jesus says this. It's the very last sentence of Matthew. Jesus is speaking, and he says to his disciples, he says to the church, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he's with us individually, and he's with us as a local church. He's with us when we gather together. When, when we read his word, right? When we study, when we sing together, when we pray together, he is here. When, when we think about God's truth, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, he's here. He's here with us right now as the church and his presence is real. It's not some made up stuff. He is here. This is real. Jesus is not only with us also, this is beautiful. He's not only with us now, he will be with us always. In fact, at the very end of the Bible, so this is the very beginning of New Testament, the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, we're told that after Christ returns and makes all things new, including a new heavens and a new earth and giving us resurrection bodies, we're told that he will be with us for eternity. The veil will be removed and we will see our Savior face to face and he will be with us for eternity. This is Revelation 21. It said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, and listen to the truth, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Our Lord is going to be with us forever. Jesus is Emmanuel. This is one of the great truths of Christmas, that God the Father loves us so much that he sent his Son, not only to die for us, but to be with us, and he'll always be with us forever. He will usher you through the doorway of death. He will be with you when you cross that river onto the other side. He will be with you in the hardest trials of your life. He will be with you in the greatest joys of your life. He will be with you, and he will be with you forever. So Jesus is our Savior, he's God, and he's Emmanuel. And what this shows us, again, church, our God loves us so much. Our Savior loves us so much. And that's what I ask you to think about this Christmas. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh, becoming a man, experiencing what we experience. And then you died the death that we deserve to die in our place as our substitute because you love us. And that means there's no more condemnation. There's no more judgment hanging over the heads of your people. And it's not because we're righteous. It's because, Jesus, you've died for us. And we now, in your presence, Father, have the righteousness of Christ credited to us. So we praise you for that. Jesus, thank you for being our Savior, for saving your people I do pray for people who have not given their lives to you. I pray that you just allow them, Lord, to see your glory and their need for you. Help people understand they can't save themselves. This is real. Judgment is real. Death is real. I pray that they would see that. Jesus, you're our Savior, you're God, and you're Emmanuel. And I do ask that you would help all of us to remember that you're with us at all times. Help us, Lord, in that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.